1: one minute past nine, you're tuned to one hundred and two point seven three 3 or maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara, uh, our second episode for 2018. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm John Ford. How are you, John?
2: I'm doing really well for Excellent. my first show of the year. Yay, and yeah, and? And my 10th anniversary Yay. of um, a host on Radio Marinara, which Yay. is pretty exciting. Started way back in 2008. So here we are. Congratulations!
1: Yeah, ten years.
2: I know, makes me feel a little old. (laughs) I still feel like the spring chicken. You
1: are the spring chicken.
2: You are. (laughs) Speaking
1: of ten years, congratulations to Nerida and Paulie P. Oh yeah, and Pat. Yeah, J.K. Mm -hmm. and Rosie, who was part of the original crew. Yeah,
2: there's still remnants here. (laughs) <laughs> hanging around of what was obviously a massive party.
1: Huge live to air here last <laughs> night at Triple R. <laughs> I was listening at home, listening to it all unfold. Mm.
2: There's there no one sleeping in the green room, though. There's no one sleeping outside, I don't think. Just sort of passed out under the uh, table. Yeah. It. Yeah, it's all pretty clean. There's, They've been dragged out.
1: There's still a fair bit of party remnants yeah. in the kitchen, though. <laughs> Uh, brilliant. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you very much, Andrew, for Vital Bits, Soulful Bits. Uh, I do love the Veruca Salt. Um, remnants, not remnants. <laughs> That's terrible. That's the wrong word. I'm still thinking of live wire. Um Yeah, uh, great reminiscing. That's reminiscing, the word I was looking yes, for. Uh, 90s rock bands. There's a... Yeah. There's a there's this big wave of Everything 90s rock. Everything comes all around again. Um, so, uh, Verica Salt are playing soon. UMI doing mm-hmm. um, I a that. national tour with Spinal Tap that yeah. they're playing. <laughs> and Fove's and spider bait—it's all going on. Did you catch um, Cram? He was playing live. Um, came he came in and um, had a chat with the Breakfasters right. on Friday and um, and played live. And Triple R, actually, if you're not already connected to the Facebook page, you should get on board that because they uh, they streamed it Stream live. Streamed that live on
2: Facebook. Nice. Oh, it was
1: fantastic. Nice. He's so great. Even if he's a rock dog, <laughs> dirty dog. <laughs> But wow. he's such a nice guy.
2: There might be a different team, but we're playing the same game.
1: Yeah, that's good. Dirty dog. <laughs> <laughs> can you feel the drum beats already starting yeah, for the community I can cup? Actually, filling yeah. it up. <laughs> he was saying it's that on Friday too. Year. All mm. right, today's program. Um, very shortly, we're going to be joined in studio by Dave Lennon. From Reef Lab, uh, Reef Design Lab, and AJ Morton on the phone from Dive to You, and they're going to be talking about uh, White Night. Now you're wondering where's the marine connection? White Night underwater, first mm. ever. Wow! So this is the sixth White Night in Melbourne, and White Night is a, a global thing and that happens not, every year. It's not year.
2: going to involve everyone swimming across the Yarra.
1: No, that maybe could they could get, do that next mm, year.
2: Maybe
1: <laughs> or across the, bay. <laughs> across the <laughs> bay. Across the bay in a day. <laughs> oh yes. Instead of around the Bay eh? There's an idea. Um, White Night Underwater, which is happening down at Blegarry next Saturday mm-hmm. night. So yep. they're going to come and talk to us about that and Fantastic. what that's all going to be. It's very exciting. Uh, then we've got a bit of news, John.
2: Yes. No, a few new- news about um, shark populations, great white shark populations. A few other bits and pieces. Yeah. And no. about
1: your, what you did on your summer holidays. Yeah, no,
2: I'll be following up towards the end of the program about where I've been for the last few weeks, which is in eastern Arnhem Land, so wow. right up in the north of Australia and all the, some of the amazing things, um, some great, many, many greats, some not so great up there. So I'll, um, yeah, we have a little bit of chat about that.
1: And this is all, of course, relevant to our program. It's not like, you know, we get the best sandwiches or, you know, the best <laughs> no, well,
2: considering like I went out on a boat and for nine days and did not see another boat or another soul for those nine days, uh, it was a very watery right. adventure. Yes. <laughs> okay.
1: Excellent. Um, So we're going to be doing that about 9.30. We're going to cross down to Hobart and speak with Antonia Cooper. Antonia is from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies and she was the diver. Uh, Last week we mentioned the discovery of a whole new handfish, red handfish population off the east coast of Tasmania and these are critically endangered Fish, I think all handfish are. In fact, there are three main species. Mm-hmm. One is actually now considered to be extinct, and the other two are critically endangered. Mm-hmm. So, Antonia was the um, she was the the um, equivalent of Charlie in Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. She <laughs> discovered the golden ticket being this little handfish uh, hiding under some red algae. Um, they'd been diving, and let her tell a story. Yeah, I'm going to let her tell a story. It's really super <laughs> exciting, though, and this actually has some quite significant. Um, impacts and repercussions for the potential survival of this entire species. Fantastic. So really looking forward to speaking with Antonia. Nice one. Mm. And as we mentioned, there's some news. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what? We were chatting so much in the green room.
2: Chatting so much we didn't bring in the weather. We didn't bring in the weather.
1: Ah. So we're going to, we'll do that retrospectively. We'll do some some retro (laughs) retro (laughs) retro weather. (laughs) Have you got some news to kick off with, John?
2: Yeah, sure. Look, A little bit about great white sharks. Um, For the first time, we have a very good estimate of how many great white sharks we have in Australia Um, because it's very difficult to count fish and particularly sharks because you can't just, you know, swim and... Swim with them and look at them. I mean, then it's not very safe to even swim around um, some of the great white shark areas. So um, we've never had a very good understanding, and they are they are um, a protected species, but we've really un- never really understood. Well, you know, what, at what level the population, and what, you know, what, are they how are they threatened? So there's been a fantastic study come out from CSIRO, um only in the, in the last week, which has used genetic techniques to give us an estimate of, of the population sizes, and I've got. want to say that when you look at the numbers you wonder how these great white sharks have caused so much perceived trouble given that um, they're not considered to be very many. Right. So they're considered to be two populations an yep. eastern and a western population on either side of Bass Strait. But say the east coast oh, population so right. yeah, so Bass Strait is, t- is seemed to be the, um, is the, divider. the the divide and there wow. seems to be little, well the Wilson's Prom kind of, and that's the, this sort of thing that, that Wilson's Prom area is considered to be a really strong division for so many marine species. Mm. Um, it obviously used to be a land bridge mm. um, while ago but also the the currents there's not a lot of flow through about straight and the currents that tend to come down um come down sort of um and, and sort of swirl around but don't mix all that much so what we're seeing is the populations don't mix all that much uh, as well um and so the eastern population of of great white sharks is only estimated to about 750 <gasps> that's adult population wow. 750 and considering the
1: that's You know, not many. The, perceived,
2: the perceived I thought you were problem. going to say in the
1: thousands, in the low thousands, but... Well,
2: the population itself is in its low thousands yeah. because there's a lot of juveniles. Right. And a juvenile is considered anything smaller than four metres. So, you know, four metres is still a pretty big shark. So,
1: is, is juvenile at reproductive age? Yeah,
2: I think no. they're looking at that. They take... Uh, I don't have a top of my head. I think it's about twelve to fifteen years to, right. to become reproductive. Um, maybe a little bit longer, but that's yeah, a long so that's, time, now. Yeah, isn't it? It, it, it is. I mean, they're, um, they, they they grow reasonably quickly, but, but they do take a long time to become to become reproductive. Um, so, so, what we're seeing is that populations of self, particularly of adults, is actually a lot smaller. But their survival rates are very, very high. Mm. Obviously, they don't have a lot of predators apart from. Apart from humans, um, so that was that was really that was really interesting. The Western population is is larger, um, but not very much by not not by much. I think it was about um, where are we uh, 14, 1,400 in the West. So anyway, really really interesting to work with and going. All right, well, it looks like the, we will have an increase in the population because there's so many juveniles. So into the adult population in the future. So it looks like some of the protection measures are, um, may actually be working. But this is really cool, and we'll, we'll, it's great that they have these kind of. Genetic techniques to estimate populations, whereas in the past, they had no idea. No,
1: they're purely going on what they're bringing up in the boats. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So So you mentioned 1,400 in the West and... Mm -hmm. Seven hundred 750. Or, yeah, so it's there. double in the west. Is that expected? Is that somehow related to fishing?
2: Oh, look, we don't know. We don't know. We don't have the historical information to know how many they used to be.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, we 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 just don't know. Yeah. Um, that said, they've been they've been fished in, in on both sides. I mean, they're not a targeted fish species. A lot of it is just sort of um, would be, uh, you know, would well, be t- would be taken for were in the past sort of yep. you know taken as as a part of another fishery but that's right but yeah. i'm
1: guessing once you know before the protections were in place mm-hmm. maybe that was enough to cause that that completely different well
2: that's right i mean the whole east coast have had um had shark nets and drum lines for a very long time queensland and and new south wales so you know that's also going to have an effect where you're deliberately targeting those kind of sharks or um to to keep them away from swimmers Mm. so
1: wow mm. fascinating thanks john Yeah, cool hey have got the weather now thank you kent very (laughs) much kent is uh he's he's got the power today Mm -hmm. he can turn our mics off at any time john (laughs) Weather. Thank you, Kenny's brought it in. Twenty two degrees, partly cloudy, slight chance of a shower in the morning and early afternoon, most likely about the southeastern suburbs. Winds southwesterly fifteen to twenty five kilometers an hour, turning southerly, twenty to thirty kilometers now in the late morning and early afternoon. Tomorrow twenty-two and cloudy. Ooh, nice on Tuesday, twenty-seven and sunny, twenty-eight on Wednesday, shower or two becoming windy. Thursday back down to twenty-three, partly cloudy, twenty-three on Friday, twenty-seven on Saturday. It's kind of, you know, up and yeah. down between 22, 27. No more 39-degree days, at least in the week ahead. <laughs>
2: that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I, mean, I heard that it's going to be a reasonably cool February. So Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, high tide, uh, lot tide, sorry, down at Point Lonsdale. Um, a high tide we had at quarter past eight this morning, and we're going to be heading for a low tide at 2.23 this afternoon. I think we might have some music, if that's Okay awesome thank you Kent we're going to be joined in studio in a minute by David Lennon and on the phone by AJ Morton to talk about White Knight Underwater so while we're lining all of that up this is a uh, fabulous cover of Nights in White Satin by Billy Davis hope you enjoy <music> Billy Davis there and uh, her version of "Nights in White Satin from back in 1972. It's coming up to 16 past nine. You're listening to Radio Marinara on 3 R. Well, next weekend Melbourne hosts its sixth white night when streets, laneways and parks of Melbourne will be adorned with colourful projections, art installations, puppetry and musical hubs. Here's some good news if you like your art underwater. Next Saturday night, Blagari Yacht Squadron has teamed up with Reef Design Lab and Mornington Peninsula's Dive to You to produce Colours of the Bay White Night Underwater. To tell us all about what's in store with Colours of the Bay White Night Underwater, we welcome from Reef Design Lab Dave Lennon. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, good morning. And on the phone from Dive to You, AJ Morton. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, guys. Hey, great to have you with us, AJ. Are you diving today?
0: We certainly are. Dennis Flinders today.
1: Excellent. I'll hit you up for a dive report at the end if that's okay sure thing <laughs> let's talk about um let's talk about white knight underwater now quick first question for you aj last year of course our listeners will know Gary marina was the location and subject of a world first so this was the large-scale transplant of an entire sponge community from old rotting piers to new structures so taking on un- white knight underwater has never been done before what is it with you guys and world firsts
0: <laughs> we <What> trendsetters, mate. <like. laughs> yeah.
1: Let's let's get to the idea of white night underwater. Where did where did this idea come from? I'll put this one to you, Dave. Where did this one come from?
3: Um, well, AJ and I were talking about some of these overseas uh, reef building dive trips we we're going to be uh, organising, and um, I said, what about? Um, showing people underwater, lighting up the bay. I mean, we're lighting up these buildings and getting excited about that. But of course, AJ and I are very passionate about the sea and the marine life and love Blair Garry Marine and marine life. And we're like, we've got to bring this to more people. And that's, uh, AJ's amazing because he makes things happen like he did with that sponge relocation. He loves doing firsts and he's got the network and the energy. And he said, yes, let's do it. And he knew the PV, Spire Electrics um, that he knew, immediately jumped on providing the lights, offering these beautiful amazing high quality underwater lights um to make it happen and so it all happened really quick well yeah it's all coming together (laughs) so that
1: we got to give spar electrics a big um big shout out as you've just done because as you said they're the they're the light behind this um and that's that's amazing so i need to go back to what you were talking about and let's do this now aj we were actually chatting in the green room before we went to air about this um this project that you guys are getting together and we'll get you in to talk about it in more detail, but dive trips to rebuild coral reefs. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yes. Oh, mate, we're really excited. There's plenty of dive trips around the world where you can sit on a liverboard and gorge and indulge and uh, and uh, live life. Uh, so we thought we might come up with a uh, alternative to that where we not only go on a beautiful uh, dive holiday to an amazing location, but actually make a difference while we're there. So, um Dave's concept of building uh, reconstructing reefs in situ, so using the existing substrate, uh, usually from dynamited fishing, um to basically rebuild the reef using the reef uh, and transplant the coals to it to re establishing habitat while we're on holiday.
1: That's amazing. so dave, you're you're uh, are you an engineer?
3: No, I'm marine science. I started I... yeah, commercial diving and then oceanography, then a masters in environmental management.
1: Wow. So how do you how do you kind of do something like that at a at a logistical We'll get back to White Knight in a second. How do you do something like that at a at a logistics level?
3: Well, it's actually not hard. And that from our work relocating coral, we've seen what's possible and building with coral rubble, it's living reef right there. And so it's from that experience that we've seen how easy it is to do and it It's actually quite painful to see these barren rubble fields just sitting there flat and unproductive for the local villagers, And quite easily they can be re-landscaped. And we re-landscape on land. When a storm comes through, you know, we repair the damage. But when it comes to underwater, a storm comes through and we just leave it. It's really, really quite painful for us that, you know, are lovers of the the sea. So it can be done.
2: So you transplant uh, living coral in onto sort of barren coral fields? Is that, is and that and how
3: it, it works? And I want to emphasise it's not just about the coral either. It's mm. about getting structure and habitat. Mm. It's about getting that protective space back. So when you've got a flat field, mm. it's not providing a lot of protection for anything. And also that, that rubble can move around and stop things settling. So it's about creating vertical and irregular 3D structure back mm. in there. So it's not just about the coral. Mm. Great. Yeah. It's biology and engineering together. I oh, know ecology
2: all together. It's fantastic.
1: Sorry, AJ, you're going to say.
2: Oh, I was just say it's such a cool concept.
1: It is. It's amazing. And um, when you when you guys have got sort of some plans in place, I'd love to get you both in and um, to talk more about it because it's really. Something fantastic. Great to see how this develops. Let's get back to White Night Underwater next weekend. Um, why Blegeri Pier? I, I'm guessing I already know the answer to this question, but there's there's quite a few great pier-based diving locations you could have gone with here. Why did you go with Blegeri Pier?
0: Ultimately, for uh, the, the beautiful sponge ball that we've got there. So, as you know, the title of the um, the event we've called it "Colors of the Bay," and for those who dive Blegeri or snorkel or swim it know firsthand exactly how beautiful it is under there and, and how magic it's going to appear with uh, some strategic lighting on it. Um, but it's the easiest spot, I think, for people to get an understanding of the the, the snapshot of marine life that we have there. Um, and it's certainly going to produce the colours that we'd like to see uh, on the white night event. But Blair Garry Yacht Squadron themselves have been um, massive advocates for the local environment with the sponge um, supporting the um, the diving community with the pontoon and everything there so when we approached uh, Ross there to say hey what do you think about putting uh, the white night event here he was 100% for it and their objective is to be the greenest marina they can be Um, so this also supports them but the way they've also opened the pier up for us to run events like this to educate the community about how awesome our marine life is here and give them an experience.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say the, the greenest marina, but there's also something that sort of goes um, into a different area too in terms of how, I guess, engaging they've been, you know, not not unidimensional in that they're a marina and they're there to service the boats that use the marina. They've sort of gone beyond that, haven't they?
0: Yeah, it's it's almost like a new, new type of marina. Um, you know, we've got discussions of uh, artificial reef um, and... Uh, and other things on the in, in play but ultimately their their overwhelming support is, is fantastic and their commitment to uh to restructure a bit of the, the landscape and the car park down there in the future and to accommodate divers with some outdoor showers and things like that which is on the horizon I believe. So um I just think it's it's important to support those who support the you know the local environment. So we're we're very happy with the guys down there at Blake Harry
1: Um Dave can you tell us a bit more about what you do with Reef Design Lab?
3: Yeah sure. So uh our main emphasis there is designing new products for architects coastal engineers councils etc that want to add marine habitat to coastal infrastructure so it's we're seeing a trend now as coastal engineering evolves and it's now worldwide recognize that biodiversity is important and with coastal structures we're putting a lot of habitat in but it's not designed for marine life so there's a lot of wasted space there that can be taken advantage so reef design lab's about coming up with those um structures they might be small just a few kilos up to 10 tons that help add more habitat back more biodiversity oysters whatever the the application is.
1: Yeah, it's re- it's really good to see that biodiversity is now seen as a priority rather than just a consideration, something that has to be in, in, considered in planning. It actually is a priority in planning and, and that's a really great thing. Alright, so white night underwater, what can we expect next week? Uh, let's start with what's under the pier. What can what can divers do? I'm going to throw this one to you, AJ. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so divers and snorkelers will be able to see uh, obviously the lighting display uh, we've been very careful about the types of lights uh, that we've used using under there because the last thing we want to do is start melting fish and uh, the environment putting some lights under there obviously is going to create a minor disturbance but there are such a low lumen and different wavelengths that uh, their impacts um, uh, from what we've been researching and been advised on is, is low certainly lower than having 20 divers with 2,000 lumen, <laughs> White torches running under the pier, but the how the uh, crustaceans interact, all the macro life, the isopods and things like that attract to the lights, and then obviously everything that feeds on them attracts to the lights uh, to them. So you'll see variations of crustacean, uh, the fish, the invertebrates or whatnot that'll come through it. But ultimately, the whole sponge wall lit up. So all those sponges and ascidians uh, that we've relocated from Operation Sponge and what Mother Nature has, you know, put in, filled the gaps with. Uh, we're just really going to see different types of sponges pop and and uh, stand out under different wavelengths of light. Um, so you'll be able to see that on snorkel as well as scuba. And... and additionally... Sorry?
1: No, I was going to say, but if you can't snorkel and you can't scuba, it doesn't mean you miss out, does it? Because there's something going on on top of the pier as well.
0: Yeah. So... Uh, if anyone has seen any of our live dive stuff that we've done in the past, we have a TV up on, uh, up on the deck and we have a camera in there. Um, this time we won't have a diver on comms underwater, we'll just have the video camera, but we'll have a marine scientist on deck to explain uh, what's happening underwater or what things might pop up on the on the screen, we're hoping that we can get the camera mobile, so the scientists can walk around and try and find some stuff for them. But yeah, people will be able to walk up and down the pier, not only see the light display from the surface, but also uh, a live feed underwater, which is kind of exciting.
3: Yeah, and it's it's not deep, so the colours will reach the surface very easily. So it's just a nice visual spectacle there at sunset and after sunset for people on the shore too. That's
1: amazing, and um, you've got some activities planned in the shallows as well. Um, something that the kids can get involved with. Obviously, they can they can be on the pier as well, but what's happening in the shallows?
0: Dave has come across these puck lights in the past, so the little hockey puck-style lights, and uh, he had the awesome concept of creating a uh, a little toddler section that we could supervise and rope off so the kids can actually hold the lights and make their own little structures underwater and throw them around and have a bit of fun, <laughs> um, as well as we're constructing a uh, a rainbow serpent at the moment, um, just also bring a little bit of, um, you know, the indigenous aspect to it, um, of where we're operating and, you know, whose land we're operating on. So we're creating a rainbow serpent, Guriala who's going to neander through the shallows, which will provide an awesome little spectacle, but allow the kids to kind of follow it around and you know, walk underneath the pier, and that will be definitely in the shallow, so most kids will be able to uh, to follow that around with their parent supervision, of course.
1: Yes, and just while we're talking about supervision and safety matters, it's an important question um, because this, at, at the end of the day, this is a night dive. Do people, anyone who wants to take part in this, particularly on scuba, do they need to have uh, a night diving qualification?
0: No. About this is we've timed it between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. So for it to classify as a night dive, um, it has to be after sunset. So we're still in uh, the final stages of the last light, uh, and with non-night dive certified people uh, having to exit the water before the 9 p.m. So sunset should be about 9:30. But our event is going to finish at nine, and that just so that it opens it up to others uh, to come and experience. Um, you know, the display without having to then um, be restricted because they might not have the diving certification uh, of a night diver. Ultimately, that throws a few other challenges for us. If we did it at night uh, for supervision aspect, we'll have divers in the water supervising the uh, the area that we're lighting up as well as people in the shallows for the kids. Yeah. Um, and the check-in, check-out procedure. But um, yeah, exit by nine and we're
1: all good. Now, you've got a Facebook page uh, which we'll provide a link to on the Radio Marinara Facebook page. Um, so, if, if our listeners are really interested in getting involved, the best thing to do is just to go to that Facebook page and you'll get all the details that you need there. A um, couple of last questions to finish on. You've got a photo competition as well. What's that all about? And can non divers take part in that as well?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good thing. So, we really, um, there's a category for a surface shot. And that any type of surface shop. Then underwater, we've got a scenic category, a portrait category, and a marine life category. And we've um, got some nice little prizes that have been donated um, that'll, yeah, go into that comp. So people... By the end of Sunday night,'ve got to post their photos on the Facebook page, and then they'll be judged by Wednesday and prizes awarded.
1: Fantastic. And uh, uh, just a last question about I'm guessing you're going to get quite a big crowd there. Um, where would you suggest people park? It's going to be I, I don't I don't think it's even worth promoting I don't know what public transport options are. I'm assuming most people who are going there will need to drive there. Where do people park? AJ.
0: Yeah, um, the easiest place to park will be the upper car park, so that'll be the, hang on, I've got my internal compass happening here, Uh, (laughs) the west side of the pier, uh, west side of the yacht squadron, that's going to be the easiest, and there's some stairs that'll directly uh, allow direct access to the beach down there, where our registration tent is, so those who are getting in the water will be able to check in and check out um and yeah, so i believe there's some functions happening on at the yacht squadron itself so if people can uh, aim to park up on the uh, upper car park and head down the stairs directly to the beach that'll be the easiest way
1: great and um if if the weather proves to be less than favorable again i'm guessing you'll put all those details up on your facebook page as well it's the best way for people to find out
0: yeah, so we've got the event listed up there where we'll put in notifications uh, throughout the week and just updates and as well as yeah, the, the plan for the for the weather. At this stage, it's looking pretty good, but who knows, it's Melbourne. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so just those details, Blegari White Night Underwater, Colours of the Bay. It's next Saturday from 7 till 9pm. And um, as I mentioned, we'll put your Facebook page link up on the Radio Marinara one. Um, Dave, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you. And AJ, thanks for much, so much for joining us. Can we hit, hit you up for a very quick dive report for today? What's your predict? What's yeah, your What's your to...
0: tip? Uh, Flinders is actually pretty good. It's protected by the wind today. Flight uh, out going tight at the moment. Viz reports yesterday morning we were up to about ten or twelve meters, so we're just about to jump in. So we're expecting a good eight to ten meters of vis, uh, and being protected by the wind, so. That, uh,
1: it's on. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Have a great dive. Well, and thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, guys. All the best for next weekend. Thank you. Uh, we've you been speaking. Thanks, AJ. See you later. Been speaking with AJ Morton and Dave Lennon about White Knight Underwater next weekend under Blair gary PR. It's 9.31. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. A couple of quick station announcements. Don't sell out
2: to the man. Sticky Institute presents the Festival of the Photocopier 2018. A four-day zine festival, including a massive 250-stall-strong zine fair in the biggest room of the Melbourne Town Hall. Today from 12 noon. The Festival of the
3: Photocopier.
2: Head to stickyinstitute.com to view the full zine festival program. Sticky Institute. Triple R sponsors.
1: Celebrate the last weekend of summer as Triple R's annual barbecue day returns to series. Rescheduled after last year's wild weather on the first weekend of summer to the new date of Sunday, the 25th of February. Midday till 4pm, a live broadcast featuring the tantalising flavours of Eat It from Midday, the Greening the Apocalypse crew sizzling from 1pm, then the JVG Radio Method bringing it on home with the all-star Melbourne Barbecue Orchestra with very special guest singers. The Brunswick East Primary School Grillers will be on the barbecue catering for carnivores and
0: vegos, plus triple R on the bar. Free entry, come down and join in the festivities, or tune in from midday till 4pm. Triple R Barbecue Day is proudly
1: sponsored by Mountain the Goat beer. How fabulous. Triple R Barbecue Day in February. Yes. What a great idea. Great idea. Got rained Going to get rained out, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Hey, it's uh, 9 33, 27 minutes to 10, and just in a minute, we're going to be joined on the phone uh, by Antonia Cooper, if you missed the start of the program, from Hobart, uh, talking about the excellent and very exciting discovery of red hand fish population uh, a few weeks ago. So, while we get Antonia on the line, we're going to listen to uh, some Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from Let Love In, Red Right Hand.
2: Fish. (laughs)
1: Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, there with uh, Red Right Hand. Fish. <laughs> from, from Let Love In back in 1994. <laughs> it is coming up to 20 minutes to 10. This is Radio Marinara. You're listening to 3RRR. Only a few weeks ago, it was thought that uh, numbers of Tasmania's red hand fish.
2: Not red right-hand (laughs) fish. I've been calling it red right-hand
1: fish fish all week. Red-hand fish had dwindled to as low as 20 individuals, making it possibly the world's rarest fish species. However, after a tip-off from the public, scientists diving in the region found a second population of a similar size and are now hailing the discovery as a major breakthrough for the species' survival. To tell us about red-hand fish and what this discovery means, we're so pleased to welcome on the phone from Hobart, from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies, Antonia Cooper. Good morning, Antonia. Thanks for joining us.
4: Good morning, Brian and John. Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, it's it's great to have you here. Um, Now, you're from IMAS. I thought we might start by talking a little bit about IMAS and how you came to be looking for the red handfish.
4: Yeah, so I've um, I've been a part of the IMAS crew for about uh, 10 years now. Um, I studied at the University of Tasmania and um, um, got employment down here at IMAS. Um, And so I've been working with them for a while um part of my role there is um working with a volunteer citizen science project called Reef Life survey um it was established back in 2008 by professor graham edgar and dr rick stuart smith um and we've been basically training up uh volunteer divers uh, around australia and internationally for about 10 years and um You know, through that, we're able to, you know, collect a lot more data and, um, from, from a lot of places that we normally wouldn't, wouldn't be able to get to. So, um, yeah, look, this, this, this dive, um, was a collaborative effort between the IMAS divers and the reef life survey citizen scientists um, which made it all possible so it was really great
1: yeah i'd love to uh, talk to you more at another time too about the citizen science program because it's something that we've covered a lot here on this program um more very you know i guess a bit victorian centric but it'd be really (laughs) great to hear about what you do as well um
4: yeah well obviously we've got a really really um strong victorian contingent as well through our project
1: yeah how big is imas
4: um there's probably a couple of hundred scientists um, from various campuses around the state we've got a couple of campuses down in the south um, and also up in the north of the state um, and yeah it just it's it's only been you know it was an amalgamation back in two thousand and ten of um, you know various um Different
1: uh, departments,
4: or different departments and, and university faculties, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Really,
1: yeah. yeah. Hey, let's go to the red handfish. I thought we might start with a bit of a description. Um, can you can you tell us about the red handfish? Because they're pretty incredible fish, aren't they?
4: They are, yeah. Look, they, um, they're they only quite small. Um, you know, I think is a bit of a global hotspot for, for the family um, of anglerfish that these guys fall in, into, um, the Brachianicidae uh, family. So um, they're quite small. They're about maybe... They grow to between 60 and 130 millimetres in length. Um, they've got modified fins that, that look like these funny-looking hands, Um they also have like a modified lure that, you know, your traditional angler fish, um, you'll see them um, dangling their lure to to try and attract prey. Um, but, yeah, they're a very funny-looking thing. They've got funny little um, you know growth all over their body and they're quite variable in color as well so you know although they are the red hand fish you'll find some that are very very red while others can be quite pale or or even orange so Yeah.
1: yeah and they're not strong swimmers are they they don't really swim at all do they?
4: Definitely not. Like I think, um, I think someone someone describes them very aptly—a bit like a chicken. Um, so they, they kind of walk around on the bottom. But if they're scared, they'll try and swim or fly. Uh-huh. You know. So um, they're they're um, they're definitely not the best swimmers. They will they will have a short burst of of swimming activity if they if they're frightened or if they um, you know want to get out of the out of where they are but um other than that their their mode of transportation is definitely walking along the seabed seabed
2: well i think handfish is a, a much better name than chicken fish
1: <laughs> although that, <laughs> that's
2: right it would have been pretty good go, oh, see yesterday i saw some chicken fish no was
1: good yeah. <laughs> does um does that make them vulnerable antonia is that one of the reasons why they're so endangered
4: yeah. Look, I think there's a few different reasons. Um, you know, they've obviously they've got a low reproductive rate, um, low dis- and obviously low dispersal rate makes it challenging. But um, yeah, obviously the, the the couple of populations that we now um, have, they seem to only inhabit um, a small, maybe 50 by 20 meter area due to their restrictive movement, um, which obviously makes it difficult with finding mates and and um, you know getting out there so while once upon a time you know the red hand fish were fairly consistently distributed throughout southern or uh, southeastern tasmania i think that fragmentation of the populations um, has also been quite challenging for their reproductive success yeah
2: so so what is what has caused that fragmentation i mean is, is 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 a very specific habitat that they live in that's that's somehow changed or or what is yeah, what is it
4: well, yeah see that's the other interesting thing about this new population so um it's quite interesting that um, this this new population that we found the habitat isn't identical to the, the first one that we knew about, so I guess from that we can take some heart knowing that um, they're not particularly reliant on um, on a, a, you know a particular set of local conditions but um, definitely they are reliant on certain um, habitat types you know mm-hmm. they, they lay their eggs on erect substrates so they do really need that um that erect growing algae or um seagrass or um stalked ascidians or, or something that that's quite solid that they can um they lay their eggs on and they also need a fair bit of protection because they you know they they don't have a whole lot going through <laughs> in terms of being able to protect themselves or <laughs> or, or um getting out of the, out of trouble so yeah, yeah um <laughs> It was interesting to see that these two um habitats were, were different, but yeah, to be honest I'm not I'm not really sure what's I think it's just um yeah, they're the fact that
2: they can't move they can't they move much. much yeah no I, I was yeah. always wonder whether the, some some animals like that are just inherently rare because of you know the, either the habitat they have or the, the the way they reproduce or something or the fact that they can't move or that they kind of swim around like a chicken um, but they're yeah. just inherently rare because of those because of that and therefore you know still require protection but um, whether you know they've actually been threatened or whether they're just they're just rare. They're because just the, that's who they
1: are. The, the perfect <laughs> yeah, storm of yeah. genetics. That's it. Yeah. Um, that, do, we it eat, do we know what eat? Do we know what predates on them, Antonia? Do they have a, a like a, a predator that's also you know contributed to this?
4: Um, look, I think um, I think if if a rat or a crayfish or or something like that were to see them, they might might have a crack. Um, but yeah, like um, in That'd- terms of hard evidence, it's it's. I'm not 100% sure, but I would I would envisage that larger fish, uh, you know, especially those those kind of, you know, the blue-throat wrasse, the purple wrasse, um, any crustaceans would probably, especially the smaller ones, they'd probably try out a red-hand fish to see if they would taste any good.
1: Yeah. They don't look like the most palatable creatures on the planet. Um, you know, they're red no. and they're spiky and they don't, you know, yeah. compared to other fish that might be swimming by. And I read that they're yeah. the... So, I read that they're the mascot of Dark Mofo. Is that true?
4: Well, Dark Mofo have um, jumped on to the spotted handfish, which we have in here in the Derwent. Um, so, we've actually, as I mentioned, you know, I think Taddy here, we're, we're quite lucky we're a bit of a global hotspot so for this family of um, anglerfish. But so, in the Derwent, we've got another um, fairly rare species called the spotted handfish. Um, and that's the, the pin-up logo for for dark Mofo they they really um, they really jumped on board with with um, bringing some awareness to that species which is yeah. really great
1: that's great um, and there's a third species of handfish uh, zebel's handfish which um, yes. is considered extinct now it hasn't been seen for more than 10 years is that right
4: yeah so I think I think that could have probably been the only thing that would have topped um, that 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 diving expedition for us would have been if we'd found a, a Um Yeah, so that one hasn't been sighted for about 15 years now and it is thought to be extinct. Mm. Um well, let's no, ke- not to say that it is, but we'll, you know, we'll definitely keep trying.
1: Yeah, well, let's keep fingers crossed that they turn up. Um, we'll need to wrap up in a minute, but I did want to talk about that Eureka moment when you discovered them. Um, we we likened you earlier to to Charlie finding that fifth golden ticket when when it you know when <laughs> they thought that they'd found them all. You'd been diving for two hours and were about to give up. Tell us about that moment yeah. when you finally found it. Yeah, look,
4: it was really exciting. I um, you know we 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 had this local tip off um and you know, so seven of us jumped in the water and we'd been searching for about two hours and you know, it just it, everyone kind of kept looking at each other, sort of saying, Oh no, no nothing yet, just keep going and it got to about the two hour mark and we just thought, Look well, I know that I thought, Oh, look, this I don't think this is this is gonna happen today. And so it's just, you know, signaled to start swimming back in and um you know, it's when you least expect it that these things happen, I guess. And sure enough, as I was swimming back, I I just caught a glimpse of a of a red handfish tail under a piece of red algae, and um, yeah, I just I couldn't believe it. It was very very exciting indeed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then you found another seven more.
4: Yeah. Well, so once once that we'd um, discovered that that initial one, um, we were able to then focus our search area on the immediate vicinity, and um, and yeah quite quickly, the team then found another seven seven fish within that kind of 50-meter 50, 50 radius from that first one. Wow.
1: How, yeah. h- how exciting was that? Did everyone get to spot
4: one? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think um, they say you can't really talk underwater, but I think we were definitely talking <laughs> <underwater>. <laughs> was, Excellent. It was, um, yeah, it was very, very exciting.
1: So wh- where to from here, Antonia? Where do you go from here? There's uh, captive breeding programs being talked about?
4: yeah so I mean it's been the captive breeding program's been very successful with the spotted handfish, and I think um up until now it's kind of been ruled out for the red handfish just due to um, their small population size and just not knowing um, if it was going to be viable a viable option so um now that they have been have been we have got a second population, um I think there will definitely be some discussions about whether this is um, a good option moving forward to try and um, save
1: this species. Yeah, awesome. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll get back in touch with you. I'm really keen to find out more about um, the Reef Life Survey and some of the citizen science, sciences programs that you're running from IMAS as well. So, um, yeah. yeah. yeah totally. And if people want to find out more about the red handfish, do you, is there a website that IMAS has? Or
4: Yeah, so you can jump onto www.reeflifesurvey.com Um and we've got a bunch of information
1: up there on the red handfish. Great. Uh, we'll put some links to that on our Facebook page, and there's also some really great YouTube footage where you can see uh, the the red handfish in action walking along this the floor, the seafloor. Thanks for joining us, Antonia. It's been great speaking with you. Oh,
4: thanks very much for having me.
1: Okay, bye for now. Okay, bye. Antonia Cooper there from IMAS talking about the red... Right. Handfish. Red, Good,
2: right. Handfish, <laughs> yes, red handfish. IMAS being the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies? Yep, yeah, that's based right. In yep.
1: This is Radio Maranara. Quick plug for next week's Apollo Bay Seafood Festival. It's running from the 16th till the 18th of February and they've got a very big focus on local sustainable seafood. It's going to run for three days. And on Sunday next week, there's going to be an event called Conversations on the Edge where 12 experts will gather by the sea to talk about farming, fishing in the future moderated by Hilary McNevin. Our friend of Radio Marinara, Hilary. Indeed. And Richard Cornish as well. We're going to put a link to that. I've got lots of links to put up on our Facebook page (laughs) today. Uh, And we might try and get someone, we might even see if we can get Hilary on next weekend to to talk about the festival and what's going on. Uh, but check our Facebook page for details because they've got a huge lineup of some really fantastic speakers lined up for next start uh, next weekend.
2: Yeah, great. And um, just a little shout out for the Victorian Coastal Awards, which are cl- uh, nominations for them close on the twenty third of February. So if you um, know of any person or any groups who have done wonderful things in the coast, um, this is a great time for to see them recognised. There's categories of individual achievements uh, around the physical environment, education, community engagement biodiversity conservation, uh, research monitoring and planning and management. So I think that these um, awards can go out to, yeah, so individuals or groups doing great things in our coast. So um, Victorian Coastal Awards. Yes, just Google that and you'll find something.
1: Great. Nice. Another link for our Facebook page. Yeah,
2: another link. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Get well, on the what Facebook are we up to? Page.
2: Four now, I think four or five now. Um, great. Look, I'm just going to finish off. Um, just, just give me, give me a little bit of uh, a little, little bit of learnings, a little bit of reflections from um, my last couple of weeks, which I spent up in Arnhem Land. So I went um, out on a boat, a professional fishing boat. A friend of mine is a Spanish mackerel. Um, fishermen up there, and they spend six months of their year, year um, basically going from uh, Darwin over to to Cairns. So, I spend the whole time just out in that scene, beautiful, amazing country, and then sort of, and then sort of back again. And uh, I had the wonderful opportunity to be able to go go out with him and his family. It's a family operation; two generations out there: the, um, his parents and and, and the um, and, and the son, and so on. And um, it's great to see that sort of um, a real family. They, it's basically they don't own a house; all they do is own a boat. You know that like these are two people of the sea. Wow. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's and, and the boat is their home, and there's a lot of love in that boat. It's it was really great. Mm-hmm. So um, we were invited to go there um, to head up there and, and see uh, eastern Arnhem Land. Um, so we went out of Gove, which is yeah, sort of if you go directly east <coughs> from Darwin or sort of um, on the side of the Gulf of Carpentaria. And uh, yeah, we were able to go out and see the Cape Wessel Islands and some some areas which are just a long way from long way from cities. You know, a long way from the towns that 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 we know and um a lot of these islands up there are now uninhabited they, they indigenous people did live on there haven 't lived on there for, for um, a number of generations now um, sort of moved back to the back to the mainland and um, just stunning country stunning country where I was talking to Kent earlier where you can feel the the spirit of the land you know that has not been disturbed and um, and so going to these places with amazing cliffs and then and pulling into these small beaches um, and just stepping down wanting to swim but can 't because there's crocodiles everywhere. Um, but also wanting to lie on the beaches. I wanted to lie on the beaches and just watch the scenery, And you can't do that. You can't lie on the beach. Not because of crocodiles, because every single beach is littered in metres of plastic <gasps> garbage.
1: No way.
2: It is just, it absolutely blew me away when we went to the first one. You're a long way from anywhere. Long, long way. I did not see another person for eight days. But you go to anything that's a beach, anything that's flat, anything where anything can wash up and it's just littered in plastic. And it really hit home for me just uh, we don't think about too much. You know, we do a lot of clean up here, you know, storm water, we do our best and you know, there's not too much plastic really. But when you go to a beach where, which has no sand... It just has plastic or mm. sand there somewhere, mm. uh, and you're in the middle of nowhere. It just it really puts in the it, the global nature of the problem too,
1: and no one to clean it
2: up. No one to clean it up because there's no one there. Mm. So you think it should be pristine, but it's not. Everything we do is affecting somewhere else on this planet. And if there's no one there to clean it up or do anything about it, then it's just going to stay there. Um, and most of this rubbish is not Australian, and that's another really really clear. Uh, differentiation being up there around, you know, we had one fishing boat and there was one fishing boat active from basically the entire of, um, you know, that entire region, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers, we were the only fishing boat there. And then on the border, you've just got hundreds or thousands of Indonesian fishing boats just lined up ready, ready to fish there. And it's, just, it's such a difference. You'd feel the difference between Australia and, and it being a bigger global problem. But, um, but the plastic was which, you know, just bottles, anything that will float um, and a lot of discarded fishing gear, lots and lots of nets. So it's a, yeah. Do you think the
1: Northern Territory government's aware of this? Is it, is it going to be a classic bureaucratic finger-pointing exercise? Well,
2: they absolutely are. But, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the plastic per se being on the beach. You know, it's just there. It's not necessarily causing a problem. It's causing an eyesore for me and a heart sore for me, but it's not. It's not necessarily a huge problem when it's when it's there. Well, so it's not necessarily their their role to pick it up. I mean, the the issue is, and, and they do, and and rangers do pick it up in in a lot of these areas, but these are too remote for the rangers to get to. Yeah, uh, it's what more about, it's more about, about looking at the source of the problem.
1: What about birds ingesting, fish ingesting, it gets washed back into the water?
2: Mm, absolutely, and but a lot of that happens for birds at least. A lot of that happens on the sea. Mm. So when it's to to some extent, it's safer when it hits the when it hits the land because it's not out in and it's not being ingested by birds so in that sense is you know clean it up yes that would be great where do you take it is the other question when you're when you're so remote um but the real issue is you know is the sources and and indonesia is the world's second largest producer of plastics and Two hundred thousand tons of plastic goes into the oceans per year from rivers and streams in Indonesia, and everything was Indonesian. Mm. Everything had Indonesian or Chinese writing on it, coming from China. So it was a it was a big issue, and I just want to really sort of hit, really hit hit me pretty hard. And that you know, plastic is a, a huge issue, and it's a global issue.
1: Yeah, um, well, Sylvia Earle once said when she was on this program, the first step is knowing, and then mm, after knowing comes caring, and then after caring it. comes doing something about it. So, and
2: sometimes you got to see it to care. You yeah. Know? Really, That's you've right. You've got to experience it. Wow. Yeah, For
1: sure. Thanks, John. No worries. We've had such a great show. Yeah. It's a sobering note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> yeah. No, it's important <laughs> that we know this stuff. Hey, thanks to all our guests today, AJ Morton and David Lennon talking about White Knight Underwater. Antonio Cooper, Cooper from IMAS talking about Red Handfish. And thank you, John. Thank you, Bron. Thank you, Kent. Kent's nodding. Thank you, Kent. Uh, you're staying on the panel for uh, the doctors, aren't you? Hardest person, hardest working person in radio on a Sunday morning. <laughs> um, next week, Dr Beach is going to be in for his first show for 2018. We're going to get Terry Allen, at very least on the phone, talking about uh, diving, what it's been like over summer and what's coming up. And Neil Blake talking about marine pollution. Neil Blake will be in here as well. Stay tuned for radio therapy. We will get all those links up onto our Facebook page probably sometime this afternoon. Thank you for your patience. And thanks to those of you Who've been contacting us through summer, too? I'm um, endeavouring to get back to you. All right, we'll catch you next week. Have a great Sunday. Bye for now.
2: Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors.